All right, sound is speeding. We are recording. Cool. All right, let's begin. Either they don't know, don't show, I don't care about what's going on in the hood. Yes, how very appropriate is that ending of our theme song for this day? Welcome to Adventures in Black Cinema. My name is Desmond Thorne. I will be your host and your film aficionado for the day and giving you your passport to black film. That ending is very appropriate for today because... In our 10th episode, we are doing adventures in Sicily and Spike, and we are doing an all Spike Lee episode. Very excited. And we will be getting into the nitty gritty of Jungle Fever. So, so thrilled about that. Uh, But first, I just want to say thank you to everybody. This is our 10th episode. It does feel like a little bit of a milestone. Like, you know, we've starting to get somewhere on this journey. And I want to thank you all for joining me and, you know, listening in and subscribing and telling your friends and your cousins about the show. And just thank you. Thank you for supporting this. Uh, Thank you to our executive producer and the brains behind this operation, Miss Amanda Seals. Um, I would have never done this if she had not suggested it, so thank you so much. And our producer, Angie, who is just so, 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 so dope, always giving me very good advice and very good ways to move the show forward. And... Mr. Matt Mozzarella, who is our audio engineer and just brings so much to the show in the way of sound in terms of editing when I fuck up. And also uh, adding a wonderful soundscape to each episode, creating our theme song and just like doing the damn thing. So thanks to the team. I appreciate you. I love you. Um, so yeah, let's get into our 10th episode with a trust and believe. So this week's trust and believe is a film from 2000 that was directed by Mr. Shelton Jackson Lee, Spike Lee. Uh, This film is called Bamboozled. So Bamboozled is about a TV exec played by Damon Wayans in a very funny and weird performance who successfully pitches a televised menstrual show to the network that he works for, and it becomes insanely popular, much to the angerment of an underground rap group led by Most Def. Now, this is not Most Def playing Most Def, but Most Def is playing a rapper. 
Um, the black people who work on the show with Damon Wayans are Jada Pinkett Smith, who plays his uh, assistant, and Tommy Davidson and Savion Glover, who are the main performers of the show. Uh, Savion Glover tapping his ass off per usual, and Tommy Davidson giving a really, really great performance here. So this movie is like fucking wild, right? It was filmed on a DV camera. So it was like filmed on a camcorder essentially. And it very much looks like that. When it was shown in theaters, it was converted back from digital into film. So I'd be really interested to see what this film looks like on 35 millimeter. Um, Because when you're watching it on a TV or any kind of other screen, it just like looks like a movie that was made on a camcorder. Um, And it works for this movie um, for a couple of reasons. It kind of gives it this wild, frenetic energy that the film really needs. I think exploring the subject matter of minstrelsy in entertainment and how Black people are treated in the entertainment industry with execs um, and how they're valued and not valued and how um, that relationship between these white execs and white audiences, you know, what they want from us, what they want to see from us, I think to put it in such a wild and frenetic manner is definitely very appropriate. Um, Because you definitely feel as crazed as this show pretty much makes everyone who's involved with it. Definitely not my favorite Spike movie. It's a little long and it is super wild and messy in a lot of ways, but it's worth watching. He's saying some important shit here, some really dope shit and giving you the history on this shit and how it still is very prevalent today. And I think looking back on it, the camcorder thing really does give it that 2000 feel. I think when this came out, I saw commercials for it and I was like, what the fuck is this movie about blackface, black people doing blackface on TV? And like, uh, it looks like a fucking home movie. It looks like my dad made this, you know, all those thoughts I had, I guess, back as like a fifth grader at the time. Uh, But it's very, very appropriate. I think, you know, he knew what the fuck he was doing, duh. Um, and it's a great piece of satire. I do love satire and especially satires on the myth of the American dream. This definitely fits right into that. Um, and there are some good performances in Bamboozled. Uh, I think it deserves a good old re-eval, Yoish. Um, also, I want to say something about Spike Lee's movies that take place in New York. Uh, because Jungle Fever is also one of them. You know, other ones being Crooklyn, Mo Betta Blues, Girl Six, uh, Do the Right Thing, She's Gotta Have It. You know, many of his movies do take place in New York. Um, and those ones that do feel like they could really go in a kind of series together. I would almost call it Spike Lee's New York Cycle a la playwright August Wilson's Pittsburgh cycle. So August Wilson, very important black playwright. Um, His 10 plays, his 10 major works are what is called the Pittsburgh cycle. He wrote 10 plays that take place in Pittsburgh and they deal with different black issues. Um, A lot of time, overtime I should say, 
a lot of the same actors have gone in and out of them. Um, Felicia Rashad's been in a bunch. Violet Davis has been in a bunch. Um, Brandon Durden has been in a bunch. Ruben Santiago Hudson, Esapetha Merkerson. Like, you get it. Heavy hitters. And all of these plays are set in a different decade of the 20th century. Some of those uh, most popular ones being Fences, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and The Piano Lesson. And all of these plays are being eventually made into feature films. I think Denzel wants to direct all of them. I'm sure Ruben Santiago Hudson is going to be involved somehow. Um, And... So the first one was Fences, and Fences was fucking great. I'd love to talk about it one day. So in talking about August Wilson's Pittsburgh cycle, I feel like Spike Lee has a New York cycle, and these films kind of have an interesting conversation with each other in a lot of ways. I don't know if I would show these films in chronological order based on when they take place or when they were made and released. I think... There's interesting things to glean from both options, but I would maybe just do it in order that he made them to kind of see his evolution and to see what kinds of things were important to him at any given time when he was making a movie. So yeah, also Malcolm X would be included in that too. So it would be, it would be so dope. Um, So I'd love to see that and to see how Bamboozled kind of fits in that world along with the rest of his New York movies. Bamboozled, in terms of streaming, it is very hard to find. It is not streaming anywhere. I'm sure it'll be streaming on the Criterion channel one day, since Bamboozled was picked up to be on the Criterion collection last year. It uh, joins Do the Right Thing in Spike's movies that are part of their Criterion collection, which is a collection of what are supposed to be some of the best films made in history, the most important and interesting films made. So it's very hard to find. Um, You have to buy it, essentially, if you want to see it, or I guess do it illegally. But speaking of Spike Lee movies that are hard to find... You are here for one reason, one reason only, to learn, to learn. Today's film that we are getting into the nitty-gritty of, Jungle Fever, a Spike Lee film from 1991, is hard to find. Um, But I'll get into that in a second. Let me tell you a little bit about it if you haven't seen it. Uh, There are many plots in this movie, and they are all excellently woven together. And I think that's one of the brilliant things about it. So let me take you through each plot real quick. Plot A concerns a black architect named Flipper, played by the beautiful, as always, Wesley Snipes. He begins an affair with his new secretary named Angela, played by Annabella Sciorra, who is white. She's Italian-American. Also, Flipper is married and has a child. It's messy. Okay, so then there's also plot B, in which we follow Flipper's brother, played by Samuel L. Jackson, who is fucking incredible in this movie. Like, should have been nominated for an Oscar. It's brilliant. It's so brilliant. And he is a crack addict, and he continually tries to get 
money from his parents, played by the legendary Ruby D and Ozzy Davis, who are both also so fucking excellent in this movie that it hurts. Plot C. We get involved with Angela's longtime boyfriend, soon ex-boyfriend, as she begins to see Flipper. And this guy is played by John Turturro in a very stark contrast to the character that he plays in Do the Right Thing, because this guy is essentially one of the good guys, and he is quietly wanting to explore his own jungle fever with a Black woman who comes into the convenience store that his father owns every day. Also, rounding out this cast is Spike Lee himself, playing Flipper's friend Cyrus, Halle Berry in her first film performance, doing excellent work as Samuel L. Jackson's girlfriend, Queen Latifah, and that is also her first performance here, Michael Imperioli, best known for The Sopranos, and Miss Debbie Meza, one of my faves, among many others in this huge, ginormous cast. So like I said, this film is hard to find on the internet. It is not streaming anywhere. You can't even rent this movie online. You can't even really find it illegally. It is quite difficult. So what I ended up having to do in order to rewatch it was ordering the DVD on Amazon for $10. It came that day or it came the next day and it was totally fine. And I also love this movie. So what a joy and a pleasure to own it and have it in my clutches. Um, Some fun facts about this movie. Denzel Washington was considered to play Flipper and Marissa Tomei turned down the chance to play Angela to work on My Cousin Vinny, which ended up being a good thing for her because she walked away with that Oscar. This is such a great honor to receive this in this year when we recognize and celebrate and honor women. Um, Of course, I owe many, many thanks to the cast and crew of My Cousin Vinny, especially Mr. Joe Pesci, for his endless support and great talent. (laughs) You know, as amazing and great as Wesley Snipes and Annabella Sciorra are in this movie, I would be interested to see a Denzel and Marissa matchup. Like, I wouldn't... switch them out. I wouldn't, you know, prefer one over the other, but I would like to see that. That would be very interesting. I think it ended up being perfect the way it was, but would love to see the two of them do do a thing, you know? Um, according to Spike Lee's father, Bill Lee, Spike's anger at him for marrying a white woman after Spike's mom died was the partial inspiration for this film. Very interesting theory, Bill Lee. I would like to hear more about that, if possible. Um, This film won two prizes at the Cannes Film Festival, including Best Supporting Actor for Samuel L. Jackson. Like I said, he's fucking excellent. And it was also in the running for the Palme d'Or, which is basically the Cannes Film Festival 
uh, version of Best Picture. In the past couple years, some really excellent films have won this award, including Parasite last year, directed by Bong Joon-ho, and two years ago, uh, Shoplifters, directed by Hirokatsu Korida. Both excellent films that you should check out if you haven't seen them. They're both on Hulu. I feel like mentioning Asian film is very appropriate, as Spike Lee is a big fan of Asian film, as am I. So my first experience with this film was actually via the soundtrack. Uh, This soundtrack is comprised entirely of original songs written by Stevie fucking Wonder. Like, oh, oh, it's, it's so good. This soundtrack was played so, so much in my childhood by my father. It was in constant rotation. He had it on cassette. He had it on CD. Um, And I love that this soundtrack is ordered in the way that an album would be. Instead of having the songs in order of how they appear in the film, they're ordered in a way that I think is better in terms of listening to an album. It starts off with this great song called Fun Day. And of course, popular songs like Gotta Have You. Yes. Gotta be, gotta be, gotta be reality, baby. Gotta be. And the title song, Jungle Fever. My favorite song on the soundtrack, though, out of a collection of some really slamming joints is a song called Chemical Love. It just has such an interesting, like, funky sound to it. Like, listen to how the beat is going in the background a little, doing this, like, left to right channel swirling thing. If you listen to your headphones. And this fucking synth is so funky. And just the chord progression is just so dope. Uh, Stevie did not write the lyrics for this, but there's something about it. It's just, it's fun. I just love, love this song. And it comes at a really great moment in the movie. It comes in a moment where, um, Flipper and Cyrus are talking about the affair that Flipper is having. And Flipper's brother, Gator, again played by Samuel Jackson, walks over to him, walks over to uh, Flipper and Cyrus in the basketball court with his girlfriend, played by Halle Berry, and Chemical Love is playing in the background. It's just a perfect, perfect moment. You know, Flipper has just spilled his guts about this affair to his best friend, and then his brother comes along, and he knows his brother's gonna hit him up for money for crack. And this amazing Stevie Wonder song is playing in the background. It's, it's just, it's just so perfect. Um, And I actually 
recommend if you have not seen this movie to listen to the soundtrack first because there is kind of a surprise after knowing the music where the songs do fit into the movie. It's a really, really cool experience. Um, So I highly suggest that. You can find it streaming anywhere. Um, I also remember this VHS being in my uh, parents' movie collection, but I, of course, was not allowed to see this as a child. I mean, there's so much sex, and my parents love this movie, but they were very, my mom especially, not about us seeing movies with lots of sex in them when we were kids. But I remember the poster on the VHS so clearly, And um, it's a very striking poster. It's a poster of a white woman's hand enlaced with a black man's hand. It's just a very striking and perfect image for the movie. Um, So I actually didn't see this movie until last year at BAM, at Brooklyn Academy of Music in Brooklyn. Great theater. They do excellent programming there. Excellent, excellent programming. They were doing a Black film in the 90s program, and that was dope because the 90s really were such an apex for Black film. Like, so many fucking amazing classics came out, and there was lots of Black film in the 90s. i like there to be another apex of Black film, please. Um, And I saw this with my friend uh, Kyle Milner. Shout out to... K. Millie and his friend Alex. And uh, we also ran into one of the projectionists at the movie theater that I work at, whose name is Alec. So when we sat down, I was surrounded by white men at this screening about a film that concerns interracial relationships. It was a very interesting experience. And uh, I also had a sinus infection. I was sick as fuck, yo. I was up in this dusty ass theater with a sinus infection. So I kept having to blow my nose. It was incredibly annoying and I felt disgusting. Um, And that sinus infection lasted a long ass time. Um, But it did not get in the way of me enjoying this film. This film is fucking excellent. Definitely one of my favorites by Spike, if not my very favorite. I haven't seen all of his movies yet, but it is definitely up there. Beautiful 35 millimeter screening. So, warning, this will be the longest that we spend talking about white people on this show, hopefully, but they are such an integral part of this film, this film, you know, concerning an interracial relationship and a relationship also kind of at large between Italian Americans and black people, uh, especially in New York. The parts of this movie that come to mind when talking about this subject is uh, the subject being people from Sicily, Italian-Americans, is telling Cyrus that he's having an affair with a white woman. Cyrus's reaction is like, whoa, like, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? And then he lays on that she's not white, she's Italian. And... (laughs) You know, I love Cyrus's reaction to this. Spike Lee is so funny in this movie. He has, uh, I love his dry delivery and it makes me sad that he's not in a lot of his movies anymore because I think he's so funny and interesting as an actor. 
But his responses to her being white and Italian is like, H-bomb. Vincenthurst. Nuclear megaton bomb. And there is a reason for that. There is a history between Italian-Americans and black folks. And another instance where this kind of comes up, this kind of shock that she is Italian, is when Samuel L. Jackson first meets her. Uh, Gator, again, uh, Flipper's brother, comes to the apartment that Angela and Flipper have now are now renting because Flipper's been kicked out of his home. So when Gator comes in and talks to Flipper about this woman that he's meeting, and then when Flipper tells him that she's Italian, no, she's Italian. Oh, shit. <laughs> you always had to do things the hard way. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's because of that history. So here's a little story that must be told. And it goes a little something like this. A lot of your Italian friends that you know are from an area of Italy that is the southern part of Italy, which is Sicily. These people are Sicilians. They experienced a lot of prejudice and discrimination from the northern Italians who don't look the way that you think they would, many of them. Uh, A lot of northern Italians have lighter features. A lot of them are blonde even. I've seen some with blue eyes. It fucking snows up there. It's just different. It's not what you think of necessarily when you think of Italy. It's not the first image that comes to your mind. The first image is of Southern Italy usually. The people have darker features, darker hair, and a lot of them immigrated to the United States. Where, like many other Europeans, they were not treated well. They were not treated as poorly as black people, but pretty close. And pretty close to the point where a lot of Sicilians, who are now Italian-Americans, worked in the same jobs as black people, lived in the same areas, and also, um, you know, there was a kind of a connection there. There was a community that was building in many places of a union of the two. And um, there were two things that happened that kind of shifted that. And of course, this is the fault of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant people in America, the true white Americans, because Italians were not considered to be white for quite some time uh, when they came here in the late 19th century. So these two incidents that kind of like popped things off for them, uh, not the only two incidents, but two major incidents, a uh, elected official in New Orleans where lots of Italians were at the time um, was killed and they accused seven Italians 
for of doing it, and those seven Italians were lynched. When they were found to be wrongfully accused and the Italian government got word of this, the Italian government said to the president at the time, they were like, yo, unless you want something to pop off, like a war between us, you got to do something. You got to change some shit up. And so when the Italian government got involved and threatened war and such, the president was like, hmm, what can I do to appease these people and kind of like, you know, get them to not fuck with me? I know, I'll give them that holiday that they want. That holiday that was called Columbus Day. And Italian Americans wanted Columbus Day to be a thing because it meant that they would be part of the American story. It would bring them closer to whiteness because white America does such a job of making people think that that's what they want. Um, And if people believe it and go for it, you know, They'll make it happen kind of by any means necessary. It's crazy. Um, so when Columbus Day became a national holiday and of course was extended to uh, an annual holiday instead of just being for one year, it bought Italian-Americans closer into the white American space. Another thing that did so was when the New Deal era was happening and everything. Owning a home was a very big deal and was like at the forefront of everyone's mind in white America. In order for white America to keep black people out of their neighborhoods, they had to let the Europeans in, including the Italian Americans. And we all know when you join whiteness, you can't just live among white people. You have to act like them. You have to start putting black people down in the same ways as white people, true white people, and they do in America. That's part of assimilating to whiteness. And Italian-Americans assimilated because seeing as poorly as they were treated and seeing as poorly as Black people were treated, instead of joining and, you know, really joining forces, you know, white America really put a stop to that and dangled this thing in front of their eyes, which became assimilation. And that is how you get generations of racist Italian Americans. Not all Italian Americans are racist. I have many, many Italian American friends. Our audio engineer is in fact Italian American. If you couldn't tell by his last name of mozzarella. Um, I've dated a couple Italian American guys, um, but that is definitely the history. And uh, that is part of what Spike is getting at in this movie overall. And also with these two interchanges of these black men being like, whew, you really chose a challenge, didn't you? So he gets at that very pointedly in especially the scenes that occur in Bensonhurst. 
uh, the scenes that are kind of immersing you into the Italian-American environment down there. Um, In the convenience store that John Turturro works at, they show these scenes that basically every morning all these Italian guys just like sit around and talk shit about black people. Just like racist shit, misogynistic shit about the woman that comes in every day. Uh, it's pretty terrible, but feels very accurate to stories that I've heard from my Italian-American friends who talk about family members that they have that are racist. Um, Spike just really, really nailed that on the head. And basically, like, how kind of scary that is, too. I think a lot of history books and the way that we're taught about race in schools you would want to think and believe that there is no racism in the North. There's so much focus on what was happening in the South and the racism in the North is terrible. Um, You know, this film itself is dedicated to a young man named Yusuf Hawkins, who... um, in the 80s, in the late 80s, I believe 89, uh, was killed by an Italian mob in Bensonhurst. Um, He was going to Bensonhurst with two friends to check out and see if a used Pontiac was still on sale that he was interested in. These dudes, this mob, thought that he was this guy who was dating one of the girls in the neighborhood who wanted to start a fight at some party or something like that. And they fucked up uh, Yusuf and his two friends and shot Yusuf, and he died. Is a 16-year-old boy. Uh, there's a documentary about it on HBO Max right now called Storm Over Brooklyn. There were many, many protests after that in Bensonhurst, led by Al Sharpton. You know, history does repeat itself in so many ways. It is so crazy to see. Um, and uh, one of the guys that was charged, one of the three guys that was charged, got a pretty heavy sentence. One guy got a light sentence and one guy got acquitted. So there were protests after that as well, after the sentencing, because, you know, we've seen that again and again, people getting acquitted for killing black people. But because of the acquittal and because of the shorter sentence, uh, there were more protests and Al Sharpton actually got stabbed at uh, before one of those protests post the um, ruling in the court. So, yeah, that's to say that, you know, uh, Sicilians, Italian-Americans and black folks have a complicated history from such union to such strife and to, in some ways, finding a way back from that in some ways. I do see, you know... In Spike's movies, he does cast a lot of Italian-Americans to illustrate this idea a lot. And he has a lot of Italian-American friends. I mean, John Turturro is in so many of his movies. And like I said, I know and love so many Italian-American people, um, including my sister-in-law, but they all have stories about their racist family members. It is insanity. Um, So to all of my Italian-American friends and loves, Gary DeNoia, I know you're listening to this and I love you. Talk to your fams. I mean, this shit has been 
you know, perpetuated from generation to generation to generation. It's all built on a lie. It's all built on myths. It's all built on myths. Squash it. Kill it with a skillet. Um, so in terms of the interracial aspect of this movie, I wanted to touch on a little bit because um, it is such a major part of this movie. I think Spike does such an excellent job of setting up this relationship between Angela and Flipper um, in these scenes, these short scenes stitched together that take place in the office after hours. They're eating food, talking, getting work done, and it's such an interesting and natural kind of courting that happens. Um, Love those scenes. And I feel like what he does too so smartly with this relationship is really show that it is really only based on lust. I think Spike possibly being angry at his father for being with a white woman, marrying a white woman, and also Spike being such a student of Malcolm X and Malcolm X being very against integration in a lot of ways and um, intermarrying, etc. Um, and he makes a lot of really good points. I have been in interracial relationships and uh, my sister-in-law, like I said before, is white. She's probably like the dopest example of who you could be in an interracial relationship with, by the way. And I'll get to that in a second. But um, yeah, showing that this specific relationship is really built on lust and really built on each party having a curiosity and really wanting to just explore that curiosity of seeing what it was like to be with a white woman, seeing what it was like to be with a black man is really at the heart of this. And he never really makes any qualms or makes you think that like, are they in love? If you're really paying attention, it's just like, nah. Um, (laughs) The scene where Flipper is introducing Angela to his parents, again, played by the amazing, fucking, wonderful Ruby Dee and Ozzie Davis, real life married couple, theater actors, legends, um, this scene is so fucking funny and so real. It's like kind of everyone's nightmare uh, when you're black and you're bringing home a white person. Um, it <laughs> so the father played by Ozzy Davis, his name is the good doctor reverend is what they call him. And this guy is so pious, again, to the point of like, are you like working with the devil? Because you are very pious in a very scary way. Uh, There's a part near the end of their dinner where he gets really upset and says, he doesn't want to eat with whoremongers. And Ruby D says, well, you already knew she was coming. And That is one of the blackest moments in film that I think I've ever seen. It is just so fucking funny. And I really hope and believe that they all broke on set and just started laughing when uh, they were done shooting that scene. Uh, It's just perfect delivery. It's just so earnest and so real. Uh, I love Ruby D. I miss Ruby D so much. But, you know... That is very much part of interracial relationship, like seeing how the parents will be, um, you know, 
Angela's father does not take the news well at all either in terms of when uh, he finds out from the neighborhood that she is having sex with a black man. Like, he beats her fucking ass. It's scary as shit. But it's also really real. Like I said, you know, these these people out here, it's real scary. Um, there is also in terms of this interracial relationship, such a great conversation that, um, the, this group of women led by Lonette McKee, who plays Flipper's wife, they have this great discussion about how they feel as black women with, uh, black men kind of going out of their way to explore relationships with white women and this curiosity that they have and how underappreciated they feel. And there's also some discussion in there about uh, colorism in terms of uh, relationships with black men, about how black men kind of go lighter and lighter until they go white. Um And it's such a dope conversation. It's a really dope scene. It gives the movie such a uh, roundness and a fullness in terms of perspective on interracial relationships. Um, Spike basically just let the actors in this scene kind of go and riff and kind of improvise and basically speak on their actual feelings. And I think that's really dope to allow these women to just really speak on how they feel. It is such a great scene, uh, such natural elements to it, and it's really, really essential. Um, It really is a big part of what makes the film very special to me. And like I said, I have been in interracial relationships myself. I'm not gonna really go into those specifically, but I will say that it is harder And um, I think Malcolm X says such a very kind of like on point thing in his autobiography, kind of just like, you know, why are you making your life harder in some ways, Uh, which is a very interesting point of view, especially it being harder being in a gay interracial relationship. It's like society so doubly doesn't want to see that. And you can kind of feel that in your relationship like day to day especially if it's not something that you talk about with your partner and it's something that you kind of just ignore um, and never have any discussion about Um, it's also harder because especially in the gay community I would say particularly in New York I'm not sure about other major cities and how other people feel but it's kind of like they're either white dudes who don't fuck with black dudes at all or there are white dudes who fetishize black men i will never forget and this kind of always stays with me in any kind of interracial entanglement that i may have with a white guy um this dude that i was messing around with in college i stayed over at his apartment for a weekend um And he lived by a lot of friends of mine, uh, which was dope. And so I stayed over at his place and, you know, we watched movies, we hung out, we ate, we had, it was so lovely. And um, I came over again, maybe a couple weeks later. And as we're in bed, like after we have done the deed, 
he basically told me that he wasn't interested in a relationship with me. He was only interested in being with me to see what it was like to be with a black man. And ding, 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 that is racist. If you are trying to fuck with black people just to see what it's like, that's not cool. I don't like it. Um, And uh, if you are in this relationship or this entanglement or this hookup just to fetishize the black man or black person, um, regardless of gender. Um, if you're going to fetishize them and their black body, um, just do us a favor and don't, um, I am very suspicious of people who only date Uh, one race of person, like person of color, especially when a guy just dates black people. Uh, It seems very suspicious to me, especially when there are so many of them for short periods of time. It's like, you are into black people, but... Are you really? Because it seems like you're not treating them right uh, in a kind of serial way. So you might want to check up on that and kind of be into us more than just our culture and our bodies. Um, And I think if you're going to be in an interracial relationship to my Black people here, make sure that you are with someone who you don't have to educate. I feel like this person should be so engaged in wanting to educate themselves. Um, I think the demise of this relationship in Jungle Fever is really rooted in that they come to an understanding that they don't understand, especially Angela, like she doesn't get it. There's a scene where they're being held up by the cops. Interestingly enough, the same cops from Do the Right Thing, see how these movies are connected? The same actors playing the cops. Um, and uh, after that happens is kind of when the relationship dissolves. They come to this understanding that neither of them understand the gravitas of what they're getting into and they don't understand it in a way that makes them want to continue the relationship or feel like they can. Um... So, yeah, a person that's passionate enough about you and your experience and your people that they educate themselves. And at the same time, like, not wanting to do the most, like, do I want a white person to read the autobiography of Malcolm X? Sure, but do I want to talk about it with you? Not necessarily, you know? Um, I think such a big part of being anti-racist is giving black people and your black partners um, the space to feel the way they feel about things that are happening and their experience. And sometimes that involves just like shutting up and listening and not really offering your opinion. Um, That's really important. I think that's something that some people miss. 
Um, and in terms of all of the entanglements that I've had with white dudes, I think that I, and like, don't hold me to this. I like to see people of every race, uh, you know, certain things have changed that my points of view on that for sure. Um, I keep bringing up the biography of Malcolm X, but it is very much rocking my world and changing my life. I uh, I don't know how many more of them I'm going to get into. I don't know. It, it's going to be some time. Uh, I was very personally hurt when after George Floyd was... Um, murdered and all the protests were starting i had a lot of friends check up on me in very non-invasive ways some people checked up and it was invasive um but you know in times when there is a lot of shit going on or basically any time you know uh, it would have been nice to have heard from people that are white that I had been with in a very intimate way, like kind of, um, you know, uh, and sustained a friendship. Uh, it would have been nice to hear from them to just kind of be like, hey, you know, I got you, or even just like an emoji, you know? It doesn't have to be a thing of just like, I will educate myself, I will be better. I don't need to hear you say that. I could see you do it and that would be dope. Um, But I heard from one, my ex-boyfriend, who happens to be Italian-American, funny enough, uh, very close to his Italian roots. Um, I heard from him, and I have to say, uh, his family has always been super, super dope and has given me space to uh, always share my experience without feeling judged or anything like that. Uh, So, yeah. Shout out to them and uh, feels very appropriate to mention in this episode. And if you choose to be in an interracial relationship, just be ready to have conversations with your partner about it and don't ignore it because uh, no one else will. And you live in America. Welcome. It's just the way that it is and blame the myth of whiteness on that. So, in conclusion with this film, I love fucking Jungle Fever. I love this movie so much. It's one of my favorites of his. He nails pretty much everything on the head that we have just talked about in this episode. I didn't even really talk about the crack subplot that stars Samuel L. Jackson, Halle Berry, Ozzie Davis, and Ruby D. It's fucking incredible. There is a sequence where... Um, Wesley Snipes is walking through the crack den called the Taj Mahal to Just Enough for the City by Stevie Wonder. The only song of his that's not an original song for the soundtrack. That sequence is fucking incredible. Um, This movie should have gotten way more Oscar love. Um, Way, way more. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson, like I said, all of the women in this movie are so good. All the black women specifically are so good in this movie. Ruby D could have gotten a nomination for sure. Um, the screenplay could have gotten nominated. Spike Lee for the direction could have also gotten nominated. The movie could have gotten nominated. It's fucking great. Another thing I want to mention about this film before we close is that uh, in terms of this conversation that it's having with 
do the right thing and exploring um, black and Italian American relationships. It's very cool that um, do the right thing has such a specific summer color palette uh, taking place in Brooklyn uh, and Bed-Stuy. And this film taking place largely in Harlem and Bensonhurst, having such an interesting like fall color scheme, such a smart filmmaker, Mr. Spike. And um, like I said, this movie is really hard to find, but it's really good. It's worth the $10 on Amazon to just buy it. It is worth it. Oh my life, I hate to Okay, so time for this week's You Better Act Award. If it is your first time in this place with us, the You Better Act Award is an award that we give out every show to a Black performance that is just so dope and feels unsung. So we want to sing it and shout it from the rooftops and give it a little bit more credit. So this week's You Better Act Award goes to, drum roll please, Teresa Randall in Girl 6. This is a Spike Lee joint from 1996. Another Spike Lee film that I think deserves uh, a reevaluation. It's about an actress who is having a hard time making it, and she decides to become a sex worker, a phone call girl in New York City. Teresa Randall plays the lead, and she gets to have some fun uh, by playing different film archetypes and different characters over these phone calls. She's so good in it. It's very, very dope. Um, There is some problematic stuff near the end of the movie that feels very, like, 90s and, like, male gazy. Um... But it's really good. It's definitely worth checking out and tracking down. And Teresa Randall's also so grounded in the scenes where she isn't giving you like character vibes or anything. It's a sad and a little bit of a shame to see that her career never really took off super, super after this. She's also in Jungle Fever. She's one of the women that um, is part of that really dope conversation about interracial relationships that I was mentioning. Um, This film was written by Susan Laurie Parks, who is a playwright, very, very well known for writing the play Top Dog Underdog, which is excellent. You should read it. I would love to, mm, it is such a theater piece, but I would love to maybe see someone tackle it as a film one day. I don't know if that would ruin it. We'll see. Um, And the soundtrack for Girl 6 is entirely by Prince. So again, Spike getting someone dope that he really admires to uh, do the music for his soundtrack. And I should say that This is the first movie that Spike Lee had no hand in writing. Susan Laurie Parks wrote the entire screenplay. And um, also, this movie stars Jennifer Lewis. Spike Lee is in this one, too. Uh, Isaiah Washington is in this. And Debbie Meza is in this. And uh, there's a few surprise cameos that uh, I won't talk about because they are fun little surprises. And... This film is also not really streaming anywhere. Um, I think you can maybe rent this one. Maybe. I don't know. See what you can find and let me know. So in closing, some food for thought. Uh, Folks who are in interracial relationships, black people and white people, what types of conversations do y'all have together about race in America? I actually meant to mention before when I was talking about my sister-in-law that everything that I was saying that white people 
should do in interracial relationships. She does, she listens, and lets us talk about our experience with her. And um, she has been educating herself since I've known her in high school. So bigs up to Danielle, my sister-in-law. Um, and I also want to know from white people who are in interracial relationships with black people, how do you let your black partners know that they are supported? How do you make them feel supported? Hit us up on SFB Society. Also comment on the Instagram post that'll be up on Instagram at Adventures in Black Cinema. Thank you per use. And again, to our executive producer, Amanda Seals, our producer, Angie, and our audio engineer, Matt Mozzarella. Thank y'all so much for being here. And um, next week, we'll be getting into the nitty gritty of Chris Rock's directorial debut, Head of State. Until then, stay safe, stay black, and stay blessed. See y'all next week.